All right, everyone, I uh, will get us started. I want to maximize our time with our terrific speaker today. As you know, I'm Clark Irvin. Good morning. Thank you very much for being here on this rainy Sunday morning after the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Pierre apologizes in advance. He was a little bleary-eyed because he was there until about midnight last night for those of us who watched it. Um, so one of the joys of my time in government service was getting to know some of the finest print and broadcast journalists in the business. And what, one such friend I met along the way, way back then, was Pierre Thomas, who then is now was ABC News' chief justice correspondent. He was new to the beat when I met him in 2001. He started at the network in November of 2000. He appears regularly, as we all know, on World News Tonight uh, with David Muir, Good Morning America, Nightline, and this week with George Stephanopoulos, which is where he came to know our dear friend, Dax Tejera. And in fact, the last time I saw Pierre was at Dax's memorial. Over the years, Pierre has covered every major story relating to criminal justice and other legal issues, literally, including um, stories related to terrorism and national security, among them the 9-11 attacks and the hunt for an ultimate killing of Osama bin Laden, the Boston Marathon attacks, the Mueller investigation, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, and the heinous murder of George Floyd and the nationwide, indeed worldwide, protests that followed. Over the years, Pierre has won several notable awards, including just last year the John S. Carroll Journalist of the Year Award for his commitment to quality journalism and news literacy education, which of course is so critical to democracy. And he's also the past chairman of the prestigious Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, and that issue is very much on everyone's mind these days, as you know. He's a graduate of Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. And with that, please join me in welcoming Pierre Thomas. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My phone on silent here. We'll get started. Well, first giving honor to God, your great rector, the Reverend Robert Fisher, the church leadership as well. Let me begin by saying how wonderful it is to be with you in this beautiful and historic house of worship on this Sunday morning. I'm honored at the invite, and Clark Irvin, in extending it, was so gracious, thoughtful, and everything you would want him to be in representing this great church, St. John's. I grew up in the church, and my faith informs how I try to live my life and how I try to conduct myself professionally. So this is a day that the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. Before I begin, I also want to thank you on behalf of ABC News for how you embraced our colleague Dax Tahara and how supportive you were when we lost him. We will never forget. We so appreciate the love and compassion you showed to his family and to his colleagues. As for today, I have some thoughts to share with you Then I look very much forward to taking your questions. Again, thank you for inviting me. I bring you greetings from the people of ABC News and our president, Kim Godwin. My being here is really more a reflection of them than it is on me. I'm truly blessed to work with some very fine people. I'm fortunate because at ABC News, we believe strongly in the words and phrases that I'm about to utter. We at ABC News, ABC News believe in public service. 
We believe that reporting the truth is vital to democracy and necessary even when it's painful to hear and hard to endure. We believe in sacrificing for our work. I've often said that journalism at its best is public service and noble. That journalism well done the right way is a calling. The pursuit of truth is important because the truth matters. We work for the people. We work for the people. And I think sometimes you'll see people on television, you'll see the articles. What I want to do today is try to bring you a little bit behind the scenes in terms of how we actually feel about the work we do. A couple of years ago, I had the high honor of being asked to offer some words of encouragement for the Edward R. Murrow Awards, which was sort of a keynote address regarding the state of journalism. It was done in a year where there was a pandemic, and it was a trying moment not unlike where we find ourselves right now. Economic uncertainty, unending gun violence, and a nation that often feels so divided when also trying to simultaneously address racial strife and so many other social challenges. Every day we are reminded that the American experiment, this living tapestry of a country, so tenuously knit together is complicated as people of so many different points of view try to find or hold on to their place in it. This is truly a dynamic, ongoing experiment in democracy. And right now, there's literally a fight over what the truth is. And we all saw what can happen when truth is suspended, a lie is pushed, and spread and believed. January 6th happens. That is why the job of the fourth estate, the free press, is so critical right now. We must try to be at our best every day. We have to show discipline, grit, thoughtfulness, creativity, resourcefulness, and the ability to sacrifice. For me, those moments often come fast and furious, and they often leave searing impressions. Two events, one recent and another from the past, symbolize what I speak of. Though I work and live in Washington, I just so happened to be in New York City on September 10th, 2001. There was a forecast of bad weather that evening, so rather than go to LaGuardia and face delays and the possibility of a canceled flight, my then bureau chief and I decided to overnight in the Big Apple. The next morning, I get a call, urgent call from my wife. She said, do you know that a plane just hit the World Trade Center? I was kind of still groggy, just you know, coming out of the shower. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I turned on the television and began to see what was happening. Next thing I knew, I found myself on set. And again, I had just joined ABC News nine months earlier. So I was new to ABC News, new to the whole culture and Within minutes, I found myself on set with the legendary Peter Jennings. And Peter Jennings was a very exacting individual. And he was like, who is this young kid here sitting beside me telling me about this terrible event? And I'll never forget the moment when the first tower came tumbling down. And Peter raised his hand to signal, no talking. He didn't want anything said. It was like he knew immediately that there are some moments when there are no words. 
So we all sat there in silence and watched the first tower come down and that smoke unfold like something that was biblical, a biblical plague of some sort. We were all in that moment powerless. I can remember seeing those families coming down to ground zero for the first time with photos of missing loved ones. And we have this thing in my ear when we're on live called an IFB. It allows me to hear the control room and they can communicate with me. And they said, okay, Pierre, we're coming to you. Peter's coming to you about 30 seconds. And in that moment, when they said that, I was seeing those people with the signs, have you seen my, and I just wanted to cry so badly. It just, all these tears were welling up, but I had to suppress them. I pushed it all down, sucked it all in, because at that moment, it wasn't about Pierre Thomas crying on television. It was about the people who actually were directly impacted. Now, my job was to call every federal law enforcement source I'd ever developed and to try to convince them to tell me whatever they knew about what was unfolding. So in the days immediately after the attack, I never allowed myself to grieve. And it wasn't until several months later that I was having breakfast and I saw one of those year in remembrance pieces with people going to their first football games after 9-11 and people saluting the flag and tears rolling down their faces. And the next thing I knew, I was weeping, just crying uncontrollably. I had never had anything like that happen before. You know, obviously when you go to a funeral, you're already sad, you're expecting that you're going to be emotional, but I literally was having breakfast, watching sports, and saw that remembrance piece, and I was just crying. Tears gushing. My wife walked in and she said, is something wrong with the pancakes? What's going on? Why are, you, why are you crying so much here? But the bottom line was that I never had allowed myself to grieve. And that had taken an internal toll. But that's what the job required. More recently, I had to apply discipline and professionalism on the night when the Tyree Nichols police beating, beating tape was released to the public. We were provided the tape by the police, um, and we had about 20 minutes to look at it, consume it, and then we were going to break into programming. Um, that's when you hear the dun, 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 dun music, and whatever you were watching is suspended, and there we are. And watching that man being beaten without mercy and calling out for his mother, so eerily similar to George Floyd, was very painful and depressing, especially for me, a black man. So the job before me, again, was to subjugate any personal feelings I had and try to provide reporting and analysis all the while at the same time letting my real factual experiences inform our viewers' understanding of the Nichols tragedy. Again, the job was to focus, help the people understand what happened and what the case meant in a broader context. What I'm talking about in regards to myself is insignificant compared to what I see my fellow colleagues in journalism do all the time. 
Sadly, we have seen journalists lose their lives here and elsewhere in the world simply doing their jobs. Journalists have stepped up and covered all kinds of stories, no matter the cost. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that we have journalists who are being held abroad. The Wall Street Journal reporter, I want to make sure I pronounce his name correctly, Evan Gershkovich, and Austin Tice, who was mentioned last night, who was kidnapped or held, he's been held in Syria for more than a decade. Think about the journalists reporting from Ukraine and other war-torn parts of the world. These colleagues volunteer to be war correspondents. Think about that. They're not doing it for glamour. They're doing it because it's important work. I'm so proud to be in the profession with them. Sacrifice is part of the job. It's what they embrace. If that's not inspiring, I don't know what is. For all that is said about the quote-unquote media, the grit and determination of journalists needs to be celebrated more, in my opinion. My colleagues want to cover stories that are challenging because they know they must be told, that these stories are important, and that our readers, viewers, and listeners need information to inform their decisions about the world. In fact, journalists deserve our prayers public service, sacrifice, and truth. Thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. It's been a combination of luck, hard work, and I think some divine providence. Uh, you know, I, I'm, like I said earlier, and this is Pierre Thomas person speaking for myself, not on behalf of ABC News at the moment. Um, I'm a person of faith, and um, I grew up um, in a working class family in Virginia. My father um, worked in something called the Lynchburg Foundry and they pour molten steel to make car parts. Uh, my mother did homemaker you know, work. And so I'm not from, you know, it's funny, a lot of people think, oh, he must be from a family of lawyers and doctors and whatever, yes, he's on TV. And I'm like, no, I'm from small town in Virginia, um, working class parents, and um, so they all, marveled that they see me on television talking to Robin Roberts and David Muir and, and doing all these different things that I do. And this is how I know there's some divine providence. When I was growing up, we had three major networks. And your signal, this was before cable was really in vogue, your signal was often determined which station you watched. And guess what the best signal was? Was WSET, TV 13, ABC. And I watched Peter Jennings, Max Robinson growing up and remember thinking as a boy, you know, that might be interesting to do. Um, and then I you know, went on to college at Virginia Tech and um, 
you know, decided to study communications and worked for Roanoke Times and World News. I worked there for about two and a half years, and I got the notion, and this is where the divine providence comes in, to one day, one of my colleagues said, you know, Pierre, you're pretty good, you know. You're young, but you know, have you ever thought about working at the New York Times or the Washington Post? And I'm like, man, I'm 24 years old. <laughs> They're not giving me a job. But with his encouragement, I wrote a letter to Ben Bradley, a name you know, and sent him some clips. And this is the absolute truth. One night I was driving back after working a really long day. And at that point I was working with the Roanoke Times in the New River Valley Bureau, which was not far from the campus where I went to, went to college. And um, I was working 80 hour weeks minimum. I covered two city councils, uh, city council, town council. I covered two universities. I covered crime and law enforcement. I was working like a dog. I mean, I was just working. But on that particular night, I had this weird feeling that something was in the mail. I get to the mailbox, it's a letter from Ben Bradley. Returning, I thought, you know, there was a good chance he would never respond. And I opened it up and it said, hi Pierre, Ben Bradley, and yeah, your clips look pretty good. I'm gonna have you contact a gentleman named Tom Wilkinson who was then assistant deputy managing editor, big title. And I was so excited. Called Tom Wilkinson up and he was gruff. <laughs> He's like, Pierre Thomas, we don't hire people from the Ronald Times and World News. You know, we hire people from the Philadelphia Inquirer. You know. And I said, well, Mr. Bradley said for me to contact you. <laughs> Pregnant pause. Well, maybe the next time you're in Washington, stop by. I was up there within a week and a half. Um, and I'll never forget. So I went through the interview process. They offered me the job. And I was very fortunate at the Post, that's where I grew up, essentially learned how to do what I do. Um, all my values, I learned about reporting technique, how to approach the job, uh, were pretty much forged there. And I, you know, at one point had one of the highest front page percentages um, of anyone at the paper. And again, I was just a nobody kid who came from, you know, the Roanoke Times of World News. And my first article there was a front page article. And my last article when I left to go to CNN was a front page article. And I got up the um, courage to invite Ben Bradley out to lunch one time and say, why did you hire me from the small paper? I was in the bureau, not even in the main office. And he just said, I could see something in your work and that you were a really, really hard worker. And, you know, he could be rather profane. I won't say, you, he would, I knew you would work your beep off. So, and so I said, well, thank you. So that's, you know, and, you know, from the Washington Post, CNN recruited me, uh, CBS recruited me, and it was kind of funny. I was like, hey, I'll go back to the newsroom. And I said, people are talking about me being on TV. And I'm like, I got these Will Smith ears. I, I don't know if that's going to work, you know, me being on television. Um, but finally, you know, I sat down with Bernie Shaw and again, called him up and he said, come by, went by his house, sat down with him and he said, you know, Pierre, you've been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, you've been a finalist for Young Journalist of the Year, you know, you've proven you can do the print thing. 
try television. And I labored over that decision for more than a couple weeks. Um, because at the time I had an offer to obviously to stay at the Post. New York Times was interested in me, as was the Wall Street Journal. And I was uh, at, at, at a journalism conference, and I was kind of stumbling around, you know. And then I started praying about it. And I asked my best friends to pray for me. And one morning they called me at 7 a.m. in the morning, and I was dead asleep. And they said, man, we're up praying for you. What are you doing? <laughs> And finally, I decided the only reason not to do it was because I was afraid to do it, and that wasn't a good enough reason. So I went to CNN. I was there for one contract, and then this lovely woman named Amy Antelis um, called me eight months into my first contract and said, you're not going to resign it. You're coming to ABC News. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I saw her at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and um, I've been thinking about her because last year I was inducted into the DC Society of Professional Journalists Hall of Fame um, and it was announced this week that um, the Reporters Committee is going to give me a First Amendment Award, um, um, one of our highest honors in the fall and I saw her and I said I want her to be there if possible because I want to talk about her because you know again I just started television. I had no idea if I could do it and it was eight months into the gig, into the gig, as they say, and she called, and that just gave me again a quiet moment of knowing, oh, maybe I'm suited for this. Maybe I can do this. And so, um, and then ABC recruited me, and um, I've been there 20 years, 20 plus years now. Yeah. Yes, sir. So um, obviously, you're a very industrious person. I try to be. <laughs> appreciate your insight into sort of lifting the curtain for us, but. Uh, Tell us about, you've got a family, obviously. Yes. Tell us about how, how you achieve work-life balance or family work balance. That's a great question. While achieving such success. That's a great question. Um, my wife is an attorney by profession. Uh, we also have a son who's on the autism spectrum. And we decided right around the time I joined ABC News um, that it might be better for one of us to be home, and this decision kind of culminated when my son was diagnosed with autism, and it turned out to be a blessing um, in that she could use all those great skills and education to apply to helping my son, and he's doing incredibly well, 20 years old. He's in a graduated high school, and he's in a program, um, vocational slash community college kind of setting. Um, and it's a team game. Last night, she drove me to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, you know, with, to within a few blocks. And my son, I said, I'll see you in a few hours. And she's helping me get prepared after this uh, event. I've got to catch a flight to Charlotte for a Nightline project I'm working on. So none of that works without her commitment, support. And I was telling Clark before we got started, um, a lot of people, if they knew what drudgery journalism could be, and especially television, they would think twice about it in this regard. When I'm on Good Morning America at 7 a.m., it means I'm in the office by 6 a.m. Going over the last few minutes of, you know, tweaking my copy, thinking about, you know, what I'm going to say, um, which means I'm up at 4.30, between 4.30 and 5. 
after that live shot, I'll maybe come home, get some breakfast, then prepare for the real day. Because <laughs> world news tonight, if the story's big enough, it's not unusual to do Good Morning America, World News Tonight, sometimes Nightline, which is on at 12.30, and then do that cycle two or three times a week. It's, it's extremely grueling. So there's a lot of time away from home. And again, if we didn't have the proper foundation of marriage and faith and collaboration, it, it, it wouldn't work. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to be here. Um, and sometimes when people ask you to do something, you end up being the one that's blessed. I mean, seeing your faces, the fact that so many of you are here on a rainy morning, you know, that's a boost. It's going to propel me through the day. It really is. So, okay. um, yes, sir. Uh, I was mm -hmm. really impressed with your comment about the belief that you have in ABC News has in the truth. But I wonder how you think about that uh, in our current situation. I mean, there's always been competing facts, alternative facts in our history, alternative narratives. Of right. It seems to be getting much, much harder. Uh, with uh, social media right. you know, and a, a plethora of, of channels. Uh, and, and I think it's going to get even more difficult with artificial intelligence, chat box being able to write convincing copy, deep fake videos that's, that uh, are very hard to tell from right. reality. Right. How do you and how do your professional journalist uh, colleagues think about uh, the ability, your ability, to get the truth out? You know, that's an excellent question. Um, I have a team of people I work with, and we have some young journalists who are part of our team, and I'll tell you what I tell them, which is keep it simple. Keep applying the same standards every time. When Twitter became a thing, I told the team, I'm not tweeting anything unless I've got the same sourcing that I would use when I'm going on the air. Not doing it, and you shouldn't either. Um, if you apply the same principles every single time, it makes everything less complicated. So whether it's social media, whether I'm doing ABC News Radio, audio, whether I'm doing GMA or World News, well, it's, it's got to be the same standard. And in this environment, um, I think people have to discern. One of the things I try to do is make myself available to young people. Um, the News Literacy Project, which was mentioned, is in, has taught over two million high school and middle school kids how to discern what the news is, what is opinion, and I often find myself breaking things down to them. And, it, and I say, okay, how do you watch network television, for example? How do you watch it? And I say, well, think of it like you're watching the Post. You have the front page, which should have news, which is objective reported facts. You'll have an editorial page where people are giving their opinion. And I said, now, if you're watching MSNBC and if you're watching Fox, what you're going to have to do is discernment, okay? Andrew Mitchell, who's a great colleague of mine, she has a show on MSNBC. It's a straight news program. Um, some of the other shows are more opinion driven, and that's what I'm saying. This is how people, they need to educate themselves about how to consume news. So that's why the News Literacy Project is so important. Um, 
But a humble brag, ABC News, David Muir's show, the evening news show, most weeks is the most watched thing on all of television. Of everything you could turn on television, of the thousands of channels, it's the most watched. And I believe it's because we try to do the news. The facts, with context, and then we let the viewers make their decision about whatever we're covering. It doesn't mean that we don't cover the news with aggression. It doesn't mean that you, know, you might get a hint in my voice if I see you know, children being killed in the streets. I'm not going to try to describe that story in a way that connects the story to you. But I believe it's because every night, that team and the correspondents, we really do try to do our level best to do just excellent journalism. Uh, Good Morning America, which is a mixture of entertainment and news, but that first half hour, we're doing news. And that's the focus. And I think that's what is distinguishing us right now. And you know we're going to continue to double down on it. But uh, at, at the end of the day, we just have to believe that doing journalism the right way is what cuts through. And again, what I just told you, a show that averages between seven and nine million people a night. It's pretty, you know, when you think about it, it, when you can get your information from so many different places, the fact that so many people say, okay, I'm gonna sit down, 6.30, and watch. It's, you know, it's, it, I get excited to, to do the show. I think there was a question back, the young man back there with the sweater on. Uh, so today's sermon is about the connection, mm-hmm. connecting with people, whether it be through voice or you know the appearance of their face. Right. Um, a lot of the news is about you know, connecting with people, right. whether it be covering the Supreme Court or covering injustices happening across throughout the communities. Right. How do you you know try to stress the importance of of connecting that human element? That's a great question. Um, the example I was talking about, Tyree Nichols, that case, uh, or George Floyd. In those moments, I'm trying to report the facts of what happened and pull out of me whatever facts I know about my own existence which are facts, not conjecture, not opinion, facts. And I recall there were a couple times during George Floyd and some of these other cases involving African-American men, by and large, being killed at the hands of police. And again, and I've said on air, my father-in-law is a police officer, taught criminology. One of my best friends in the world is an FBI agent, retired. Um, So I have great respect and admiration for law enforcement officials, I really do. But that doesn't mean that I can't understand that something that many African Americans have been telling the broader public for years is that when we're pulled over, eh, there might be a different reaction and interaction than our white counterparts might be. It's why we give the talk, where we tell our sons and daughters, please be respectful, be extra careful, and and in all these incidents that have been described in the last decade, you can't point to white men or women being killed in the same way on the scale. It just so sometimes in those moments I can use own knowledge 
and interject some analysis that hopefully distinguishes us from the competition. And, and I remember, and I think, again, this was just born out of being an experienced reporter and a person who's older. I said, you know, what is remarkable about a lot of these cases is that these young men and these people are dying when it's a nonviolent situation. And I said, now that'll help inform our, you know, our white counterparts and colleagues to, to think about it from our perspective. George Floyd died over an allegation that he uh, gave a phony $20 bill. When the police arrived on the scene, there was no allegation of gunplay, an assault, anything. <clears throat> Tyree Nichols, same deal. We were talking about routine encounters. So I can sort of inject that into coverage even as I lay out what happened. And you know, I've heard from viewers you know, that kind of helps the perspective. Um, I've talked about having been pulled over myself and how my heart starts beating a lot faster. Um, because it just is going to depend on the caliber and the training of the officer that I'm going to encounter. So that's how you can use who you are to affect how you cover the story without being overly opinionated. Yes? My question was almost already asked. Mm -hmm. But I will ask a practical question. Right. All the things you do, good morning, America, and then of course the national news. Do you have actual time to sit down and write out what you're going to say? Oh yes. I mean, do they give you enough time and how do you know which subject? Because there might be three or four things that day. Right. How do you identify the one that you will write about and speak about on the news? Well, you know, we have story conferences in the morning and we talk about the stories that are unfolding, the ones that we're likely to do. And usually by, I would say noon or so, I'll have a pretty good idea of what they're going to ask me to do. Now, you heard that term, breaking news, which is, ooh, breaking news, Lord have mercy. Um, you know, I've been in my bed at 6 a.m. and the story's breaking. And they say, can you get there by 7 and be live at 7? I'm like, I'm in my pajamas. Uh, I don't have a helicopter. I'll give it a college try, and I'll be using my Bluetooth and reporting and dictating what I'm going to say. But I write my own stories. Um, if you see me doing a live shot, I've usually written that down just so I can make sure I'm being accurate. Um, so you, don't, you can ad-lib, but you can't ad-lib facts. <laughs> it, it, the truth has to be spewing out of my mouth. So, um, but weirdly, that's when I'm most at peace is when I'm writing whatever I'm going to say. And it could be, it, may, it might be a three minute window. Um, what, I mean, what's a good example? Something happened, I think it was involved in the Tyree Nichols case. There was something, a report that was released at 5.45. World News airs at 6.30. And I had just enough time to read the report and they said, well, we're gonna need you to talk for about a minute straight through, which that's heavy pressure, by the way, when it's just you and you've got to read something, understand it, talk to sources, and then just come and be live on television. Um, I much prefer when I've got the piece and I'm 15 seconds off the top introducing it, 
piece in the middle of this tape that I've recorded, you know, maybe an hour or so beforehand, and then 15 seconds on the bottom. That is nirvana. I can do that <laughs> without too much stress. Um, but it's, you know, I, I do write everything, and, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's very pressure-filled. And you just have to be, you have to understand that that's part of the job. Now, I have to be so succinct. I was just going to say, then you have a card. Do you have a card in front of you that you're reading what you wrote when you're making your report on 9-11? Now, 9-11, things like that, when I'm on the phone with sources and they're giving me information as we're live on the air, that's coming from sourcing, I'm writing notes, and then I'm boom. Um, if it's something where we have to have graphics, if we're a new name, I will use a teleprompter app that I have on my iPad, and I'll try to type in everything I'm going to say. So it has production cues, so when I'm saying certain things, they can show the video. So uh, we'll have someone who's standing, under, standing beside the camera under it, you know, tap a button, and I try to get the speed right so I'm not rushing too much. I will use that primarily as a security blanket for accuracy. So I can know I'm saying the name right, if, you know, especially when you're covering law enforcement, you have to be very specific about what someone's charged with. Again, it's, it's, I love my colleagues who cover politics, but to me, I'm like, oh man, that's, you're talking in generalities, you know, there's not 6E grand jury material, there's not gonna be a leak investigation, all the different things I may, may face, so yes. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, yes. enjoyed Margaret Sullivan's columns in the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. She focused on the media. And one of the things that she said in her, was one of her last columns, if not the last, she talked about the need for journalists and those in the media to call out people, not just report the truth and the facts, but also to call out those who are not reporting. Uh, the truth and not reporting the facts. How do you feel about, about that? Do you think it's going a little bit too far beyond um, what a journalist's uh, obligation or responsibility are? Well, you know, different organizations have ombudsmen, you know, that can critique what they do. Um, I'm focused on what I'm doing in terms of the stories and the facts that I'm doing. Um, columnists, are in a position to do that. Um, I just think right now, the most important thing we can do is just do the job. Cover what it is you're covering well and thoughtfully, and that's the key. Because the one thing that I, I look for when people come up to me at the grocery store or when I'm in the mall, and, and you know, it's funny because I work I go home, I was selling Clark, I've become kind of a homebody, so I'm not really out that much. And I'm always surprised that people come up. And, but then when you think about what millions of people are seeing you, and you're in their homes every day, and they, they're, like, they're, they're just having a conversation, they're mid-conversation before I'm like, oh, you know. Um, and what I'm most pleased with is the, the consistent thing I hear from people is that, Pierre, we just get a sense that your agenda is just as inform us as best you can that you don't just love being on TV. And I think that is what I really try to do, and I'm there for a purpose, and that's to inform. Thank you.
You had a question in the back? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Go ahead. I would just think that it would be difficult to find a lot of sources compared to the Justice Department or up on the Hill. Right. Talk, can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? I cover the court infrequently. Um, it's funny, when I was at the Washington Post, it was sort of a right of a passage to do your first Supreme Court story. And it was really cool and interesting. And I occasionally get to do them now um, for the network. Um, what I can tell you about it is you're really not going to get much in terms of what the jurists have to say until they render their opinion. The key is understanding the case and looking at the pros and cons of the case, and that's what you focus on. You, and, and, and invariably, they're really interesting because they made it to the Supreme Court, and you sort of break that down, what the, what the plaintiff and what the, you know, the other side is saying, and that's the beauty of it, because you're looking at the different perspectives. Then you're trying to figure out, okay, six to three, is there some moderation in the six? And who's going to form some alignments? And, and most of the, the people that cover it would tell you that they only can go by their track record in terms of what they've done before. Rarely do they get any real sense. That's why that story that Josh Gerstein, whom I know, uh, and his colleague, when they broke about the Roe v. Wade overturning, that was just like a blockbuster, like, oh my God, someone got a leaked opinion. That doesn't happen. So that's an excellent question. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. When you look at the state of the TV news gathering business, the industry, what makes you celebrate and what makes you grieve? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, tough question. Um, look, the economic uncertainty, um, some organizations are having to contract, lay off people when you know the people and their sacrifice and their commitment when any, if you lose any colleague, that's just heartbreaking. Um, but I tend to be an optimist. Uh, even in this divided country, I just believe at the end of the day, truth is going to win out. I have to believe it. And, um, and there are just moments when I'm doing a job and it doesn't even seem like work. Uh, when I sat down with Harry Dunn, uh, the police officer uh, who was called the N-word during the January 6th riots in his first television interview, and he was very nervous about suddenly being thrust into the national spotlight, and I was honest with him. I said, oh yeah, when you go on Good Morning America and most millions of people see you, you're gonna be out there, and he said, you know, President Obama's going to see me, and President Trump's going to see me, all law enforcement. I say, oh, yeah, that's going to happen. But the beauty was putting him at ease so he could tell his story. And it turned out it was a very important story to tell, that in the midst of all that chaos, you know, there were these officers fighting for democracy. And then when you hear these stories, 
about, oh, it was just a bunch of tourists and it wasn't that bad. No, 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 go talk to the law enforcement people who were literally fighting for their lives. That's, I didn't create the term medieval fight. One of the officers I interviewed told me that. Hand-to-hand -hand combat for hours. And you combine that with the video that you can actually see. And that's, that is what is scary, that you literally can have an event unfold with cameras everywhere. And then people come out and say, oh, it wasn't that. So that's why our job, that's, you know, I keep circling back to what my remarks are. That's why this job is so important. That there still has to be a place where people can look to and say, they're telling us what happened. And doing it in a way that's compelling and interesting. Every time I would do a January 6th piece, the vehicle, the primary tool was to use that video. To show the video, the moment when uh, one of the officers said they ripped his taser off and tased him and he had a heart attack. To see Harry Dunn say, look, they called me the N-word 15 times. And when I did that exclusive and it was on primetime and on Good Morning America, I thought it was very impactful to see how that word still is a weapon. Because it, he wasn't expecting it. He was just saying, oh, I'm doing my job. I'm trying to protect the capital, capital. And then race seeped into that as well. And then you peel back the layers and you say, oh, there were some Nazis there. And there were these di different kind of people with different points of view. And so again, truth can be uncomfortable. Truth can be painful. But it's always valuable. Everyone, please join me in thanking